Lieberman. And I'm Jeff Bellin. Welcome to Office Hours. So this is William & Mary's Law School podcast. Welcome back. And today's guest is uh, Susan Herman, and she's a professor at Brooklyn Law School, but also the president of the ACLU. And when I told people uh, that the president of the ACLU, this might have happened with Michaela too, was coming on, they were like, oh, great. So you've got the president of the student chapter of the ACLU. And I said, no. Oh, the Virginia ACLU? No. This is the actual president of the ACLU. So Nationwide. It, like if you went to the ACLU and said, I want to talk to the boss. They'd be like, you're not allowed. Right. But if they, uh, for some reason. Allowed you access. Yeah, this is who you'd get eventually, Susan Herman. And let me tell you something. Susan Herman is a delight. Yeah. No matter how mad you were about whatever you wanted to talk to the boss about, once you spoke to her, you'd be like, okay, yeah. I guess it's okay. Yeah. She's going to soothe you right into <laughs> a reasonable state of existence. She is unbelievable. She's nice. She's smart. Ooh, boy, <laughs> is she smart. And she is cool. Yeah. She's really funny. That was the biggest surprise for me. You think you think of the president of the ACLU as someone that's like fighting battles and and just, you know, has has an edge, right? And she does. And she is. Well, she does those things, but right. but she comes across as like the most reasonable, nicest person you've ever encountered. Gosh, she's amazing. Yeah. And and so there's a lot of difficult things I thought we would hit her with, like, oh, let's see her answer this. And the, it was clear pretty quickly that she'd thought about this stuff a lot longer than we had, and nothing was phasing her. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, I know the answer to that, and, oh, I've resolved that problem. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. I wrote an amicus brief on that point. Yeah, <laughs> right. no she's been gotcha thinking, questions. She's been thinking about this stuff for decades. For decades. Yeah. So we were really lucky to mine her expertise on this yeah. episode. Yeah, and, and I'd say the only downside, and you probably are getting this already, is that Michaela was a little bit starstruck. Okay. And and so like I'd say like this, the, the hardest hitting question was along the lines of can I have your autograph? Okay. <laughs> In my defense, I I dare anyone <laughs> to try to roast that woman. She's unbelievable. She right. is unroastable. Right. And sorry if I'm a little <laughs> obsequious. She happens to be a hero. Right. Well, after asking Professor Chasen if he had had any friends growing up, <laughs> I, I thought a that, fair question. <laughs> I thought the listeners were expecting a little more hard hitting journalism, which they've come to expect from the Office which Hours I, podcast. Sure. Yeah. And uh, we get that. We get that. People are relying on us for yeah. certain things. So I'm luckily, sorry. luckily I stepped in, I yeah. thought, and, and tried to bring some of the edge that people are looking for when they tune in because they weren't getting that from Michaela in this <laughs> podcast. Look, it wasn't my week, okay? It wasn't my week. We got a good cop, bad cop dynamic, and this week Bellin was bad cop. So we hope you'll enjoy, well, you know, and won't be too disappointed. In no, this. but I think, I think it, it was really interesting. And the other thing that's just fascinating about speaking with her is at a time when the country has a lot of kind of partisan fighting going on and ideological divides, uh, hearing from her on this kind of principles that the ACLU stands for, whichever way they come out, was kind of refreshing, right? And you may not agree with the things she says, but the, the kind of way that she approaches problems as like, here's the principle, I've had this principle for 20 years, mm-hmm. and I apply it no matter who's the speaker or what the situation was, is kind of something that I think we could see more of. Uh, look, you're not going to hear otherwise from right, me. I'm and, obsessed and, with it. Yeah, so Michaela is a big fan, and uh, you'll, you'll see that uh, during the podcast. So stay, stay tuned. I think uh, this is a, a really good one.
Professor Susan Herman, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for being, inviting me. Well, thank you for being here. We are delighted to have you. My pleasure. Yeah, we truly are. We, I think you're the best get we've had yet on the podcast. But I haven't even spoken yet. <laughs> just your presence. Your, your presence well. alone. Oh, presence, your presence alone. We've also had some duds. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. We've had two fabulous professors so far. Correct. Um, and we are delighted to, to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you from New York? Um, I am originally? indeed from New York. Okay. Um, I grew up, I was actually born in Brooklyn, where I now live, and then I grew up on Long Island, as they say, locally, mm -hmm. uh, and then moved back into the city when I had a chance and just never left New York. I, I was curious about uh, if, do you think, looking back, that there were things in your childhood that would have predicted that you'd become the president of the ACLU? <laughs> so, like, an well, example would be, like, maybe your elementary school banned books or wouldn't let you have some reading material. You've somehow heard this story, I No, is, is that true? <laughs> really? No? You're kidding. It's like one of my favorite stories to tell. So oh, when good. people, you know, reporters would start asking me, you know, how did you become a civil libertarian? The story I tell them is about how my elementary school banned books. They didn't really ban books, but here, here's the story. So my third grade class was putting on the play of Johnny Tremaine, the story about the boy and the American Revolution sure. and what he does and all. For some reason, the, the elementary school principal really liked student theatrics. So... <laughs> We're doing this play, and plays don't have that many words, and I found the story interesting, so I went to the library to take out the book. Because, right. You know, there's a whole book about it, and I wanted to know what else happened. So I found the book on the shelf and took it to the librarian, and she said to me, you can't take out that book, dear. And you always know when there's a problem coming when someone calls you dear, right? Yeah. She said, that's in the boys' section. Oh, uh, no, she gasp. didn't. Yes, right? <laughs> she sure did. So I had always known there was a boys' section and a girls' section because I had been dutifully going to the girls' section and taking out what, what was there, which was collections of fairy tales and biographies of presidents' wives. Huh. You're kidding. Nope. So let me get this straight. There's a boys' section and a girls' section That's right. in the library. In the public school library. Okay. Right. This is my school library. And they actually enforce it, it, it I hadn't. That's what I had not known, that it was going to be enforced. I thought I was just voluntarily going to the girls' uh -huh. section because those were recommendations. So, you know, I was an obedient child. So I said, okay. So, you know, I went home. I told my mother what had happened, and steam came out of her ears. It sure did. <laughs> it sure did. So she called up the library, and the next day I was told by the librarian that I could actually take out whatever book I wanted, including Johnny Tremaine, as long as my mother didn't call again. And within a few months, they had totally changed their policy. Wow. So what I wow. like to tell people is not only are you uncannily you know, <laughs> getting my, you know, my civil liberties it's origins. It's the only thing I've ever guessed correctly. I, well, you know, <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, buy a lottery ticket today. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to tell people that the first civil libertarian I met was my mother. <laughs> right. Wow. Right? You know, but she totally taught me you know, how you can stand up to authority. And, you know, they were trying to, you know, stereotype me or they wow. were trying to tell me I should be aiming to be either Florence Nightingale or a president's wife or a fairy tale writer wow. and that was about it. Wow and so were there any repercussions did they I don't know retaliate I, I'm, I'm worried for you at oh, no, this no, moment. No. Tell no, me. And my mother actually did just fine so years okay. later uh, when my mother was you know quite a bit older than she had been at the time and I was thinking about this story so I asked her did she remember this happening and she said no right. when I told her the story but she listened as I was telling her my memory of it and then she said that very thoughtfully she said good for me <laughs> good for her right. indeed so, there you go good so she was indeed. she was pleased in retrospect yeah, so and, that and she more than stood just up. the book she also set you on this path right? she so did that's, that's right and she was very proud of that she was a member of the ACLU oh wow she recently died at the age of 97 but she oh. was a member of the ACLU and very proud wow my first civil libertarian 
So that it sounds like this is very much in your blood, and that sent <laughs> you then to to college, of course, at Barnard, and then to NYU Law. Right. And going to law school, did you know you wanted to continue this work, or was it something that you put together later on? Well, I think when I went to um, to law school, I had taken out three years between college and law school. And you know, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, but my father had always told me, he was a lawyer, and he had always told me that law was no profession for a woman because you know you need to have your children and the clients and et cetera. So I had never really thought about that. And what they both thought was that I should be an English teacher. Mm. So you know, I actually had a completely different job. I was working uh, for this magazine that was about classical music and the performing arts. But having been a child of the 60s, I had an attack of relevance. Sure. And I thought, you know, I can't uh -huh. just do this. So I was worried about you know, a lot of things, about you know, poverty and, and the war and you know, all sorts of things. So I went to law school fully expecting that it would be really boring and that I'd have to you know, kind of hold my breath and get through it. And it turned out I found it really interesting. Yeah, parts of it are. Yeah. <laughs> my class, my yeah, classes, parts I think of it you mean. As long as you choose the right professors, you do great, right? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So speaking of professors, so what happened in law school was I had a professor my first year who worked a lot with the New York Civil Liberties Union. And he was the one who first got me involved in working on actually a, a landmark case called Village of uh, Beltaire versus Boras. Uh, which had to do with a village in on Long Island that it was one square mile and the whole village was zoned for single-family homes and they defined family as no more than two persons unrelated by blood marriage or adoption. Hmm. Oh. So our clients were six students, graduate students at Stony Brook who were sharing a house mm -hmm. and they found out that they were illegal residents much to their shock. So Larry Sager, who I was working with, I was you know, serving as his research assistant over the summer, and this case came up. And I ended up, you know, that was my first experience doing civil liberties litigation, uh -huh. you know, kind of soup to nuts. Right. And the case, you know, it, we took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, that's an unbelievable, was, unbelievable first go at it. I know, it was that's unbelievable. That's everyone's law school experiences. Is that how everyone's Basically, goes? yeah, that's oh. how it goes. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one more story <laughs> about that, because I think this is kind of another way that you get hooked on doing this kind of work. So when I, we were working on this case, uh, we went and got, the way that the students first found out that they were illegal residents was that summer was coming. So they went down to the village hall or whatever it was to get their residence-only parking permit. And they were told they couldn't have a residence-only parking permit because they were illegal residents. Mm. So they you know, came to the Civil Liberties Union with great alarm, which was right, because under New York law, if you're violating a zoning ordinance, every single day is considered a, an, an individual count of disorderly conduct. Oh. So they had been living in this house together for a while, so they were liable, should anybody have wanted to prosecute them for their illegality, for millions of dollars uh -huh. of fines and hundreds of years of imprisonment. Wow. So they were, they were quite so. alarmed. So yeah. we went to a federal judge who, you know, long story short, he ended up signing a temporary restraining order for us in which we had written, please, you know, tell them that they have to leave them alone while we figure out whether this is constitutional. So the federal judge, having read the story, he was a wonderful man, John Dooling, even though he ultimately ruled against us. <laughs> so he's sitting there with the order and he looks at it and he says, I only have one problem with this order before I sign it. He said, don't your clients want to be able to go to the beach while the litigation is pending? <laughs> you know, do you mind if I write that in? So he writes in by hand in our, our temporary restraining order, wow. and the students have to be allowed to go to the beach. Wow. So as the junior member of the team, I was sent out to talk to the students and kind of look around Belterre, see what it was like, and explain to them what was going on in the litigation. So they take me for a ride in the Jeep that belongs to one of them, and sh they want to show me the residence-only beach. No sooner do the high tires hit the parking lot but this large man comes striding along the parking lot, obviously knowing exactly who they are in this wow. car. And he said, what are you doing here? So they all look at me. 
And I'm thinking, what am I, I'm not very big. What am I supposed to do about this man who doesn't want us in his parking lot? And then I thought, well, actually, I have a federal court order in my pocket <laughs> right here. So I kind of drew myself up, and I pulled out my federal court order. Right. And I said, I'm with the New York Civil Liberties Union, sort of. Right. And I have here a federal court order that says that these people have a right to go to this beach. It's pretty so good. the guy looks at me. He looks at the order. And he melted. Even, even and with I, the, it was like handwritten, handwritten. in the beach part. That he didn't, he didn't even, he didn't even look at the page. But, <laughs> right. but you know, it was just, you know, he was like you know, the, the Mississippi sheriff coming up. Wow. Yeah. But I thought, I thought at that point, I thought, wow, this is cool. I want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, so eventually you get onto, then you're like at the ACLU for decades at that point. I mean, I don't want to say too much about that. With, but with like, the ACLU. I actually yeah, went into so teaching. So you started as a general counsel, maybe, and then you're right. on uh, yeah, board, right. and then you're the president. And so, like, you know, basically, uh, this is how I would think of it. You know more about the ACLU than anyone else in the world. Is that <laughs> <Possibly>. fair? Possibly. <laughs> All right, so you're not <laughs> well, going to We have that. our historians. There are other people who might sure. you know, oh, challenge okay. me for the title, but I know a fair amount. <laughs> All right. Well, well we're giving you the on. title. Yeah, okay, well, thank you. And they haven't even come on, so, That's right. That's right. But so one of the things I think is interesting, I mean, you know, you can... You can tell me if this is true or not. I think there's a lot of kind of feelings pro and con on the ACLU in America. And so I, when I was doing my research, which was you know brief as usual, but uh, I checked <laughs> sure. on the, the Google. We're all about cursory research, right? Because it's, it's more it's more uh, impromptu. It that's feels right. uh, okay. Organic. So yes, that's the reason. And uh, like you know, one or two links down when I did my search was this this link. It called it said the ACLU, the machine of Satan. I, mean, I didn't. I didn't click on that because I kind of got everything I needed to know from the the thing. But it made me think that you might get a lot of email and calls and things. I mean, is that right? And and at some point, are you kind of like enough with the free speech? I've, I've uh, <laughs> I could use a break from this. I mean, is there a lot of uh, pushback and things like oh, that? Oh, there is a lot of. I get you know, mail of all sorts. Um, and I think a week after being elected president, I got what was actually voted hate mail of the week oh, in, really? in the office. Um, I also have one of the things that's very interesting is that somebody at some point decided that it would be really fun to send people at the ACLU Christmas cards because huh. you know they we're supposed to be at oh. war against Christmas, which right. is ridiculous. You know, we <laughs> support freedom of religion. Right. It's just we think there's more than one religion that, that people might have. So I've gotten some lovely Christmas cards, <laughs> one of which was from a nun in St. Paul who was praying for me to come to Jesus. And you know, that's just lovely. Oh, that's nice. And people who are generally confused, they, they would say, well, you know, I don't understand why the ACLU takes this position. But then I also got a Christmas card from a gentleman in Tennessee it was a beautifully engraved card with you know, beautiful blue and snow and so on the ground. And it said, um, may the blessings of the season, you know, whatever. And then it, it had his name engraved on, in, in the inside the card. And below that, he had written in beautiful script. He wrote, may the good Lord strike you dead. Uh, yeah. So I get many kinds of reactions. But what I like to think is I think that the ACLU in many ways is a very conservative organization. We're really just about fundamental American values. And I've been to many places where I talk to people who don't expect to agree with us. And when you talk for a while, it turns out they actually do. Yeah. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, sort of unlikely alliances that you mm -hmm. end up forging. Are there any alliances that make you particularly uncomfortable? Or are those the moments that you double down and you say this is exactly, these are exactly the bedrock principles that um, motivate our existence? Well, I think both of the above. I mean, in terms of alliances, we have a lot of strange bedfellows, okay. where one of uh, the very important uh, p kinds of work that we're doing lately is criminal justice reform. 
one of our top priorities because mass incarceration in this country is just out of control, as you well know, Jeff. And so we're really looking at ways that you could get rid of cash bail so that jail doesn't become debtor's prison right. because, you know, what people can't afford. And the fact that we just, we have more prisoners than anyone in the world, any country, you know, either by percentage or just by population. And it's just, it doesn't make sense. So in that effort, we have um, one person I know who's terrific is the woman who does the criminal justice work for the Koch Foundation. Uh, we recently did an initiative in Oklahoma, a ballot initiative where the people of Oklahoma directly voted because their legislature wouldn't do this, but the people of Oklahoma wanted re sentencing reform. Mm -hmm. They wanted some of the money that was being spent on locking up you know, drug offenders and so forth to be put into more uh, treatment programs and things that would make people not need to go to prison. So we had an amazing coalition on that and there were people with right on crime there were, you know, there was uh, the former Republican speaker of, I think it was the House in Oklahoma, was the chair. And so we have a lot of alliances. And that to me, you know, may be strange bedfellows, but we totally agree. And, right. you know, we don't agree with the Koch brothers on everything, but we sure agreed on that. And so we work beautifully together. Uh, what's a little bit more difficult is some of our clients. So as you're saying, McKellett, so we've had in the past, because our, we, um, our First Amendment work has always been content neutral. Right. And our North Star is content neutral. It doesn't matter whether or not we agree with the speech that, that you know, what somebody wants to say in a demonstration, in a newspaper, in a pamphlet. We believe that people have the right to decide for themselves what they say and that the danger of government censorship of speech, that there will be bias or abuse, is much greater than, you know, than whatever dangers are posed by free speech. But I'll tell you, there are times when we just have to hold our noses that you know, ever since you know, representing the Nazis in Skokie, right. you know, we've represented the Klan, we've represented the West. You know, we haven't represented the, the Westboro Baptist Church, but we filed a brief in, in the, that case. And I was in the Supreme Court the day that case came down, mm -hmm. saying that the Westboro Baptist Church had the right to do the horrible, disgusting things they were doing. You at, at military funerals. The, at military funerals, they would tell the, the grieving family that the reason that their son had died was that the United States is not sufficiently homophobic and we let you know, the you know, right. gay people into the army. And it just, you know, disgusting in 17 different ways. And I have to say, you know, I was not happy. Mm -hmm. It's not like you wave the flag and say, hooray, we won. Right. It's just, you know, you have just have to swallow deeply and say this is on principle. And to me, I think law students could really uh, relate to that because it's like um, criminal defense attorneys right. often get a lot of grief. You know, how can you represent those people? And the lawyer's answer is, I'm not representing the crime. I'm representing the system. I'm representing due process. So to me, when we represent somebody like a white supremacist, we are not advocating for the speech in any way. In fact, I, I hate it. I don't like what they're saying. But we have to look past the client to the fact that we're representing a principle. And in fact, some of the cases that, um, that we litigated in the 60s, that the NAACP litigated, uh, were the cases that allowed people in the civil rights movement to be able to speak and to demonstrate were based on earlier cases like Brandenburg mm -hmm. versus Ohio, which was about the right of Ku Klux Klan members to speak. And is, is so, and that's something I wanted to talk to you about a little. Also, I think that is the the thing that people know the ACLU for is this kind of uh, adherence to the principle that causes the ACLU to represent people that you wouldn't think they right. would. Uh, and I wonder now, I know there's been news uh, coverage that after the election, uh, the ACLU, I think, got maybe a ton of new members and, and maybe doubled. Is a that ton and a half. Oh, more uh, than yeah. doubled. We yeah. got over a million new members. And wow. we have 
about quadrupled, I think. Wow. Right, and so that, that gets to my question of, like, in this era, it seems like s there's such a push for people to be on a partisan side mm -hmm. uh, or an ideological side. That, that, is that something that's affecting the AC ACLU? Is it harder to stand up for the principle now than it maybe used to be? I don't think it's harder to stand up for the principle. We are still nonpartisan. But I have to say what's hard, it's not hard for us to stand up for principle, but it becomes increasingly difficult to say what it means to be nonpartisan mm. when the federal government every other day has a major assault on civil liberties. So a lot of our new members, I mean, here's what's difficult. Many of our new members just expect us to be anti-Trump all the time. Right. Or, you know, kind of agreeing with the Democrats. And we're not. Yeah, there are times when we have represented uh, Mr. Trump's followers mm -hmm. at the Republican convention in Ohio when there was an event zone that would have been too limiting on the, the ability of groups to demonstrate at the convention. One of our named plaintiffs was Citizens for Trump. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, some of our new members are going to be surprised by this. Mm -hmm. But Jeff, I regard this not in some ways so much as a problem okay. as an opportunity. Because yes, and in this climate where it feels as though every day, and you said this, that the federal government is um, chilling civil liberties. How do you prioritize the work that the ACLU does? Well, what's interesting is um, we do have priorities. I mean, we do have our own you know, silos, in effect. We have you know, projects that, you know, the, the Racial Justice Project and the Immigrants' Rights mm -hmm. Project. But what we've done with a lot of our, you know, our newfound you know, contributions is we've created a Constitution Defense Fund. Hmm so that we can, in fact, be using resources wherever they're necessary at the moment, mm -hmm. instead of mm -hmm. trying to predict, you know, we want X percent to go here and X percent to go there. Uh, so, you know, everybody is doing work. And to me, you know, to say which is the most important, is it, that's like, you know, Sophie's choice. Right. You know, you don't <laughs> choose among your children. Right. But I, at the moment, some of our top priorities, what we say in terms of what we're going out of our way to do, one of the things I mentioned before, which is criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. And one reason why that's an important issue to us is that, first of all, so many people are affected by it. Uh, but a, a second reason is that that is a place where I think reform is possible and mm. progress is possible because we have such strong bipartisan support. Mm. And what we like about that issue, in addition to it's really important to a lot of people, is that in so many other areas, we're just playing defense. Mm -hmm. you know, whatever the administration is, not just the federal government, it's the states as well sure. that come up with all sorts of laws that we feel like you know, you know, we, we have to push back. But instead of just pushing back and trying to retain rights that we already thought were secure, like the right of a woman to choose to have an abortion, um, criminal justice is a place where we feel like we can move the dial and make progress. So that's a top priority for a number of reasons. That reminds me of another thing that I brought up with Michaela, that one of our goals, this is a secondary goal, was to have the podcast go so well that the ACLU would try to stop us from releasing the podcast. <laughs> Ooh. Right, right. And that would just no, be No, no, so we ironic. would represent you yeah, exactly. if somebody was wouldn't trying that, to stop you from right. releasing it, the podcast. Wouldn't it be like, the, what a question we would ask that would cause you to say, oh, hold on, free speech generally, but this podcast. But not for you. Yes, it, this podcast needs to be closed down. That would <laughs> well, actually, can I tell you one of my favorite ACLU <laughs> stories when people start accusing us of being hypocritical? Well, yeah. you know, how come you're never there when the American flag needs defending? Or how right. come, you know, you only represent Christians and you, or you never <laughs> represent Christians and you know like a lot of it is just not true the right. fact checkers will tell you but my favorite case was actually in Virginia 
where there were um, some students at a high school, I don't remember which high school, who were having a football game, and before the football game, they wanted to have a part as a, a, a kind of a, a denominational prayer. And so the ACLU of Virginia wrote them a letter to say, on you know, some students were upset about this, so they wrote a, a letter to the high school, to the, uh, the principal to say, you know, you can't actually have a denominational prayer that's sponsored by the school. If the students want to pray, that's fine, that's their right, but you can't have the school sponsor a religion at the exclusion of others. So evidently the school had lawyers and they looked at this and they said to the principal, you know, they're right. You know, if they sue us, they're going to win. We're going to have to pay them attorney's fees and we don't want to do this. Right. So the principal said, okay, you know, you can't have your demons, you, you can't have your, your prayer. So some of the students who had wanted the denominational prayer were very upset by this. So they decided that what they wanted to do at the football game was to have an anti-ACLU demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> so the principal said to them, you can't do that. That's going to cause, you know, or, you know whatever. You know, it's going to be too disruptive. Right. You can't do that. So do you see it coming? Yes, yeah. I think so. I Tell it more. It's a, what, a, what a great story. Yes. Okay, great. so the ACLU of Virginia wrote a letter to the principal to say, let the kids have their anti-ACLU <laughs> demonstration. <laughs> really, that's free speech. Right. <laughs> campus and uh, campus speech is kind of a hot issue and so so you know wh what do you see there I mean is it are, have things changed it seems like there's a sense that generally people like the idea that uh, they want to hear from all voices except if it's something they really disagree with right. right and then and then maybe that should be stopped in some way and and so do you this is a kind of a it's everywhere but also uh, pointedly on campus do you see something is, is something changed in campus uh, communities, or is it kind of the same issues you've been dealing with? For well, I think what's changed is public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I run into so many, especially you know, younger people. I'm not going to say millennials, but you right. know, younger people who um, don't get that the First Amendment protects all speech. So they say to me, "Well, you know, well, but what about hate speech? You know, you can't have hate speech." And I say to them, "Hate speech is speech." So I think what has changed, or you know, I don't know how much of a change it is, but you find a lot of students who will tell you, actually UCLA did a really interesting survey a few years ago, surveying 140,000 incoming college freshmen about mm -hmm. their attitudes about all sorts of things. And one of the things they covered was their attitudes about free speech. So they asked people, okay, so do you think that your school should protect you against really you know, out there extremist speakers? And a super majority said yes. I, you know, I think I should not have to be exposed to people who are saying really horrible things. Another question was, uh, do you think that the right to dissent is important? And about the same supermajority said yes. Now, yeah. I look at those two answers and I think, that's two sides of the same coin. Throughout the ACLU's history and throughout our country's history, it is people who want to say something that other people hate. Right. You, who are told, you, can't, you can say anything what you want, but you can't say that. When the ACLU started, people were being prosecuted during World War I for speaking out against the draft, right. criminally prosecuted. Um, across time, you know, the labor organizers, uh, you know, the people who had the wrong political beliefs, uh, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church, the Klan, the Nazis, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter, there are all sorts of people who were silenced by some level of government someplace mm -hmm. or prevented from demonstrating or prevented from speaking or excluded from the speaker series because people say, well, you can say whatever you want, but you can't say that. And to me, the that that you can't say is when you're really kind of going beyond the realm of speech into incitement of conduct. Mm -hmm. You're saying that's the only thing that you would say that's should it. be suppressed. That's it. The idea is that the, the Brandenburg test is that if you can't show that there's imminent violence, just the fact that over the long term, 
uh, what somebody is saying might you know mm -hmm. stir somebody up to mm -hmm. you know to somewhere down the line do something violent that's what you know, is on the it's other harder. side but to me you know it's not enough okay. and what's always been difficult it's always been a difficult line sure. you know, where do you draw the line between free speech and things that are really beyond speech so the ACLU is actually you, you might think almost on the other side of that issue too because we believe that schools do have an obligation to work against bullying and harassment um, and, and, and that's a part of equality and right. inclusion. Right. So you know, it's always been a difficult line to draw and I think a lot of people get confused and that's one reason I think why school administrators don't want to allow certain kinds of speech because they're afraid they're not doing the right thing. So I think what we need, I mean, you know, the old saying is that the best antidote to bad speech is more speech. I think we need more and more speech. We need to be able to talk to uh, our, each other better and listen to each other better. And um, the conference that I'm attending tomorrow, I think we're going to be talking a lot about this, about whether right. the First Amendment is under fire because of the fact that people you know, are, are just assuming that you can just take certain kinds of speech off the table. Right. When in fact, I think the better way to deal with it is to build a cocoon around it of more discussion. So if you're going to have a extremist speaker on campus, I think what you need to do is to arm the students, so to speak, with ways to talk back. Mm -hmm. What are these person's arguments? Um, what are the counter arguments? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say about this? Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to say too is I think that some of the schools where there have been the most issues where people really get upset, it's really about uh, issues of equality and inclusion. Because when you have minority students at a mostly white university and white extremists are making racist jokes and, and you know, making them feel, and putting up racist posters and making them feel excluded, the reason they're feeling excluded is that they were already marginalized and feeling so fragile that you know, the joke can kind of make them feel over the top. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that instead of saying you can't say that and focusing on punishing or disciplining the speaker, kicking the speaker out of school, what the schools need to focus on is what they should be doing, right. which is instead of having token diversity, to really work toward inclusion. Can we play my <laughs> yeah, game? Yeah, now? let's play your game. All right, so I had this game. Michaela encouraged me to do it. I was saying maybe we shouldn't do it. It's not becoming. But if it doesn't work, it was entirely his yeah, idea. So true. let me just put All that right, So basically there. the game is, um, it's what can we ban? And so I'll give you something, and you tell me if we can ban it. Okay. <laughs> so here's the first choice is Fox News. Can we ban Fox News? Nope. Okay. So okay. then I think I know what your next answer is going to be. You do the next one, this one. Okay. Can we ban MSNBC News? Nope. <laughs> okay. So these are too <clears> easy <throat> for you. Go. All right. So next we have Breitbart. Nope. Can't ban Breitbart. Okay. All right. Lauren, Lauren Stribe's Twitter feed. <laughs> nope. All right. All right. Okay. We can't do that. What about telemarketing calls? They're very annoying. <laughs> telemarketing calls. We tried to sneak some more difficult. We, we kind of knew what you were going to say in the first ones, but you never know. Well, I, it seems to me there is a way that individual people can do that. I, you know, th do that you can us. opt out. That's the Lieberman family's been on it since 1998, honestly, right. and it doesn't work. Yeah, that's not are working Are you getting calls me. all the time? Yes, me too. I keep getting <laughs> the calls. There seems to be all these exceptions that I think are free speech related, and so your fault. Oh, totally. Susan? <laughs> okay, right, she's willing to live with that. Okay. <laughs> all right. So what about spam email and pop-up ads? Can we ban those? Also annoying. <laughs> also annoying. It seems to me that once you're talking about those, 
I mean, part of the problem here is that you're talking about private people who are not actually subject to the First Amendment. That's right. That's what this was his game again. That's no, but so I want the government to ban them. Oh, you want the government yeah. to ban them. We you want the government to ban the, the private people. Email. Right. Probably we can. But that's why I'm saying that the, the, it, it, that's a different issue because yeah. they don't have a First Amendment right. You know, whoever it is, Google or you know whoever it is who has the pop-up ads doesn't have a constitutional right to post those pop-up ads. All right, good. So we so we can. I didn't say we. It's good if we can ban some of this stuff. You're the one that doesn't want to ban anything. <laughs> Thing. Let's ban some stuff. Here, the next one I definitely want to ban laptops in classrooms. Well, I personally have a hard time with that because as a civil libertarian, I kind of feel that students should make the choice. Yes, but? But I do tell them turn off the internet. Yeah. There you I go. do tell them, you know, I don't oh. want them shoe shopping or watching porn during my class. <laughs> you have a right to do that, except in my class. Not quite the civil libertarian thought you were. Huh. Right, but you know, off. what people say is that my right to free speech goes as far as your nose. So what I tell them is that the other students are going to be distracted if they're making, you know, making their vacation plans and watching porn. Well, thank God you banned laptops in your class. He's <laughs> oh, already you? done it. He's I a tyrant. I figured I could. And yeah, is that successful? I, do you think that works? Yes. I think it, it works for too. me. I actually think it works, right, too. Thank you. Yeah. Occasionally, a student will say something like, thank you for stopping me from using my laptop. But mostly, they just grumble and say, <laughs> right, right. stop Millennials. They, they, <laughs> they say, I don't know how to write anymore without <laughs> right, my typewriter. Right. Yes, that's part <laughs> of I can't that. take notes. But, but so you're on the record saying that, so you just turn off the internet. So they can yeah. still have their laptop, but they can't surf. And yeah. then they probably don't use the laptop anymore. Yeah, some do, some do. <laughs> yeah, I figure getting uh, accustomed to, more of them getting accustomed to not using the laptop because I have colleagues who ban laptops. Yeah, that's class, actually, it's, and they it's get accustomed become a lot easier because it's becoming more common. Right. right. All right, so the last one you'll appreciate. What about, can we ban faculty meetings? Faculty, oh, now that's important. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you, I'm sure you know the saying that, you know, somebody once said that the reason that faculty meetings are so intense is that so little is at stake. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. If no one had said that, I would say that. Like, that is so true. Yeah, especially if, like, like you, if you've come from other areas of practice, and, and so you've had other experience in the world where a lot rides on various decisions, and then suddenly you're fighting about, like, can we have a one-credit class right. for three people in What the about thing. the Keurig machine? Are <laughs> we going to get it back in the, the faculty no, the Oh, we had, we had major disagreements about whether there could be a jukebox in the cafeteria, and the student cafeteria. what did you decide? Well, we don't have one, but I don't know that it was our decision, you know, because I of was just going to say that the coffee machines was, was not uh, brought to the faculty. Oh, that it was too important. Too important. That was too important. <laughs> <laughs> Handled Above your pay grade. By the dean. <laughs> 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 which, is, which is the trick to all of law school administration. That's right. You just whisper into the dean's ear. Well, I don't. No oh, one, no, no one listens to me, but when well, it matters. One of my colleagues once said that um, he thought that faculty members get paid for grading exams because the rest of the job is just fun. Ah. So maybe you could say that we also get paid for faculty meetings. <laughs> so between your faculty meetings and coming to William and Mary oh, to right, speak right. and traveling internationally. Indeed. Some. How do you have time for it all? Like, I'm worried about you. How do you, <laughs> well, how thank do you, you balance it all and then unwind? Do you? <laughs> yes, I do indeed sometimes. But what I, I like to quote, um, you know, my friend Judith Kay, who was chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals, mm -hmm. discovered after being chosen as chief judge that she was also chief judge of all the uh, administrative judge of all the courts in New York. So she used to say to people, and this is the line I love to plagiarize, she said, each of these jobs takes 80% of my time. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that's a remarkable, like, so you know, I, you know, there's other people in the world who have tons of uh, responsibilities. Yeah. They're not as kind of calm and reasonable as so Susan is. Cool. This is this oh, I'm is, extremely reasonable. How have you managed? Civil libertarians it, are just reasonable. Is it when you when you leave the podcast, are you going to start yelling at people yeah. and like breaking are you a things? Monster in private. Be honest. <laughs> 
Claire. Well, you know, you could you could ask my husband. <laughs> oh, oh, we'll get him on the next okay. podcast. All right, right, we'll do a series kind of uh, digging deeper that's right, on that's right. uh, the president of the ACLU. So you need a fun fact here, I think. So yes. one of the things that I do, you know, to unwind is I sing in a, in a chorus. You do? I do. <laughs> you know, the choral repertory, you know, well, the Mozart and Beethoven and that's whatever. That's amazing. And it ties into really your nice. work pre-law school when you were working right, at a magazine. the music part. The, the music it part. It does. It does, what, what, but I just... Are you an alto? I am an alto. You good seem ear. zesty enough to be an alto. Very good ear. Yeah, you're no soprano. You're no, no soprano. No. Sopranos stick to the girls section of the library. But it's also the altos are very reasonable. <laughs> the altos that's, are very like, reasonable. like, you know, you're, you're doing the supporting part, and you're not always showing off yeah. with the melody. That's right. And sometimes it's the Real hardest line. Team players. It's the hardest line to sing in the harmony. Sort of like it the is ACLU. Indeed. Plus, the other thing <laughs> I really like about chorus rehearsals is it's about the only thing in my life that I'm not in charge of. Oh. I'm not in the front of the room. Right. I don't have to run it. I just sit down and, yeah. Isn't that great? Well, it is. thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. So that's our podcast with Susan Herman, the president of the National ACLU. Or I guess she's a national president of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. That's right. Don't you forget it. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, uh, like we said, I thought that was really interesting. She's the best. I don't know what else to tell you. Like, sorry <laughs> I didn't come with those heavy hitters, but boy, she's amazing. All right. So there you got it. Oh, and, and we should say uh, we've got a, a great guest for next week, kind of a change of pace. Yeah, a change of pace. This is going to be really refreshing. He's so cool, you guys. He's a professional athlete, a professional law student, soon to be a professional lawyer. Yeah. And an all-around great guy. His yeah. name's Bill Bray, and he's coming up next week. Yeah, so a, a longtime uh, Major League Baseball pitcher who is now a 3L at William & Mary Law School, and had a lot, I think he'll have a lot to say about, or we're just going to try and ask him about, the transition from being a big-time athlete to being a big-time law student. Yeah, something you know well, right, Bellin? <laughs> exactly, right, right. <laughs> Playing, uh, you know, I did play soccer in high school, and, and so I knew a little about this experience from having played soccer in high school to sure, becoming sure. A, a law student. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people would see me on the street and be like, hey, didn't you play at yeah, soccer hey, in high school? Yeah, hey, fancy feet, Bellin. Yeah, 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 sure, sure, <laughs> right. sure, sure. Didn't you, didn't you get in a couple games in your high school uh, career? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that's to come next week. We hope you'll tune in. Thank <laughs> you.